Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey everyone, it's Serge from Libre Lounge. Unfortunately, Chris is still up on the mountain working on some crazy, awesome, interesting code that I'm sure that they'll want to share with us when they are back. But in the meantime, we are very lucky to be joined by Phil Hagelberg, who is known online as Technomancy. Welcome, Phil. Thanks. Uh, thrilled to be here. So I will talk about how I got to know you. You've apparently done everything. So you've done multiple times types of programming. You've written games. You've done hardware. I first encountered you, I want to say back in 2004-ish, when I got involved with Clojure. And Clojure is, for people who may not be familiar, is kind of a modern lisp um, in the style of common lisp and scheme and racket but with a lot of new ideas that were brought up then, and you had written the, the packaging system, essentially. Right, yeah. So in the the aughts, I guess we're calling them now, uh, <laughs> I was uh, just getting started with Clojure, and we're all kind of just getting started with Clojure. It was maybe um, a year or so after it had first been released, and um, I'd gotten a job working in Clojure, and really found the the lack of tooling to be kind of problematic. And so I was lucky enough to be able to have the ability to work on a project like that uh, while I was at this job and, and put together Line again, which is um, which really took off and has been kind of like the de facto uh, project tooling for, for closure. So that's, that's kind of where I, where I got my start uh, there and probably the, the most widely used piece of software I've written. Yeah, and I think it's it might be fun to explore a little bit about why lisps are interesting and why closure is interesting, even even though I think neither of us use closure right now. My understanding, and it might be wrong, was that that was really your first real use of a lisp for for serious work. Is that right? Uh, actually, so I I got into lisp first with emacs and there's kind of a funny story there because what drew me to lisp was that that whole idea of the, the thing that sets lisp apart lisp languages apart lisp is uh, you know a family of languages so you have a uh, you have this idea that you can have code that operates on code uh and metaprogramming and, and lisp just makes that a lot more seamless than most languages do uh when i was in Eighth grade, I think I wrote some text adventures in QBasic on a DOS machine that my roommate had, and I I didn't have any background in programming, of course. It was in eighth grade, but um, I wanted to write a program that could let you, you know, manipulate a text adventure game, and I ended up writing uh, something that could spit out code for a game uh, that you could walk around in different rooms and stuff, but I didn't know nearly enough about data structures to make it actually make sense, so I just had it emitting, you know, print, you are in such and such, kind of just really awkward, awkward uh, way of structuring it, and it didn't work at all, really. 
But then when I read about it later in college, I felt like, ooh, I, I really, this really appeals to me because it has that, like, that self-referential uh, magic. Um, and that that's kind of what, what hooked me. Of course, I don't end up really using that very much. It's it's a neat trick, but it it's not the kind of thing you pull out all the time. Uh, what's really stuck with me with, with Lisps is the idea of developing interactively and, and being able to almost like have a conversation with your code as you're writing it. I feel like there's just something magical about that style of development that uh, that draws me and makes me not want to give that up or, or try any other language that doesn't at least offer that model of, of development. Yeah, uh, I think that Lisp for all of its flaws, and, and I'm pretty critical of Lisp sometimes, but the composability element is unmatched in, in any other language that I've tried. Just the ability to to take a, a statement and being able to uh, composably work with it on the editor. I guess Haskell people might might uh, have some ire for that statement, but I, th- I think that it's just easier to develop components and pieces in Lisp and have more assurance that they're going to work when you combine them with other pieces. So for people who don't know, uh, Lisp, you know, has this allure. It's a programming, it's a, it's a family of programming languages you know, with its um, origins in the, in the 60s. Uh, it's one of the oldest languages. I think it's the second oldest language currently in use, uh, second only to Fortran. And it, um, you know, it, it was the first language to introduce if statements, and it was the first language to introduce garbage collection and all these other kind of very modern features. Um, yet it was built in the sixties and it's, it's extremely, extremely simple. Um, and it's very famous for, for its, for its use of parentheses. So it felt like Lisp had, uh, while it was still in use, the language design, a lot of the language design elements had either come by through committee or had kind of just withered away. The, the work that was being done was very incremental and very much kind of the way it felt was it was designed not to upset any of the past. And Rich Hickey came in and said, okay, I'm throwing all this away. I'm building a new modern Lisp with um, some pretty, with a whole bunch of radical ideas, and uh, very different syntax where he allowed um, objects on the reader that were, you know, vectors, so arrays rather than just lists, and also famously hash tables. It ran on the JVM, so you had interoperability with other libraries. And then uh, a very different idea of a concurrency model um, baked right into the language, which had a lot of uh, strong opinions on how you should be programming. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think we want to make this a closure episode, but I do think it's important to, to mention how, how exciting that was for a lot of us back then that there was this kind of radical work being done. And, and I, I know for me, it kind of reinvigorated my interest in, in Lisp. Yeah. And, and really the big thing, I mean, there's a lot of, of interesting things there, but the one that made it stick is the fact that you could use it on the JVM, the Java Virtual Machine, which meant um, suddenly, you know, I mean, before Clojure was released, you had plenty of programmers interested in Lisps and and using them uh, 
on weekends and, and evenings and stuff for fun or to write, you know, personal tools and stuff. But um, it was very unusual to see any anyone doing that at their day job. Um, it's pretty rare. And so Clojure was, by situating itself on the that platform, uh, allowed it to kind of be brought in, uh, you know, snuck into these shops that um, knew how to deploy uh, the JVM and, and used all these libraries on the JVM, um, but suddenly could could bring in the Lisp and kind of get the best of both worlds, whereas previously had been, you know, they've got their own foreign uh, runtime that has, you know, different set of libraries and not very good interoperability. Right. And I think that was a, a pretty radical idea, which was, hey, instead of trying to reinvent all of the libraries, everything in the world, we're just going to rely on the existing libraries in the Java world. And look, there are, you know, a gazillion libraries for Java. So um, why, why reinvent them? And, um, and that made the, so they also put out a, a version of, of closure for JavaScript called closure script. And it was interesting because it, it, I felt like it was a lot um, in some ways easier to use because you didn't have the overhead of the, J, of the JVM. But then on the other hand, you also didn't get, you really didn't get the full benefit of the, of, of, of the concurrency models that you got in real, in a quote unquote real closure. So, so that, that was interesting, but it wasn't, but I felt like at least at that point, uh, it was, uh, a move toward, uh, making this not just a little tiny project, but a real, a real language. Yeah. I haven't actually really used ClojureScript much. I don't, I don't work in the browser much, but, um, that is, uh, when, when Clojure first came out, one of the, the common, uh, criticisms from other Lispers who had gone the more traditional route is, um, you know, Common Lisp is a language, one language that has a spec and it has multiple interpret uh, implementations of it. Um, and the same with Scheme. There's a, there's a document that describes Scheme and then there's, you know, 10 or 12 different people or 10 or 12 different pieces of software that, that implement that. And Clojure, was just was just an implementation with no descriptive document and it still is that way but the fact that it's that there's no one standard for what defines what closure is but the fact that it has been you know ported to many different runtimes even though they're not really cross compatible necessarily um it gives it a little more um a little more sway to the the folks who would cast that criticism for what it's worth <laughs> I mean, for, for me, there was an, an interesting argument also with, with ClojureScript that basically at the time, you know, JSON was still vying for public attention against XML and ClojureScript, uh, proponents were arguing that, that closure on the reader. So, uh, you know, basically closure being entered in through a, through a text document was a better idea than JSON because it had more types. Um, I think today you'd have a hard time making that argument because we have things like JSON LD, um, and that, and JSON itself has become kind of an accepted de facto standard far beyond JavaScript. So, you know, at the time you didn't see as many libraries in other languages that just implemented JSON, whereas today, Everyone pretty much agrees that, you know, JSON is an interchange format. 
but it was an interesting it was an interesting argument. Um, and I I actually did know people that wrote ClojureScript code and made full applications in ClojureScript, so it, it was actually used for for real things, um, as well as just being an, a nice alternative. Um, but you know, and I'm not going to speak for you. I'll say I'll speak for myself. I guess I turned off of Closure at two this two distinct points. Uh, the first is when I realized that by using the Eclipse license, that it precluded me from writing GPL code in Closure, and I had assumed for a long time that this was uh, a mistake that would get corrected and. Um, learn subsequently that this was not uh, a mistake, but in fact, a uh, specific design choice by the Eclipse licensed developers, that they, that they had made this choice on purpose yeah. and that this was not going to change. I am still using Clojure at work, actually. I, uh, uh, for my, you know, for my day job, that's, that's my bread and butter, but um, I used to do a lot of it in my free time. And I don't really do much of that anymore. And it's not exactly for the same reason, but it's, it's definitely related. Um, I think for me, I, you know, maybe, maybe a decade or more ago. Well, no, when I was, when I was in school and I was in university, I read about the free software movement and like, wow, this is really, uh, this really speaks to me. I, I, I want to be part of this movement that, you know, uses software as a form of mutual solidarity and, you know, is, is focused on, on sharing code because of the cultural and political benefits that, that that gives. Uh, but being maybe a little bit naive, I, I saw the open source movement come along and say, Hey, we're going to use these same licenses as the free software movement, but we're going to do it for completely different reasons having to do with um, we just want software that works better regardless of the political outcome of that. And I, I kind of bought into that for a long time. And um, I kind of, it took me a long time. I, I slowly came around to the fact that actually, no, these are, these are really different things and, you know, free software and open source. And if you, um, it's, they they happen to use the a lot of the same licenses, but the the goals are very different. And spending all your time, free time, working on open source is great if you want to use it to get a job or something. But it's not this kind of, um, it's not this social good that I kind of came into it thinking it was. So I, I it really. It took a while for me to, to realize that and, and kind of once I, once that sunk in, realized like, oh, actually, you know, this is not something I want to be spending my free time on. I want to be pick projects that are, that are a little more strategic. Uh, so, so I've, I still maintain line again, but it's, it's very much in maintenance mode at this point. It's, it's got the features it needs and, and there's the occasional bug fix, but it's not, it's not a big investment of my time right now. Yeah. I mean, for people who, who may not know, Lunigan is used for creating a project. So it's kind of similar to pip on Python or maybe CPAN sort of on, 
uh, though not quite, on on Perl and maybe npm or at least the package.json component of of JavaScript development. So it's it's a core piece of using Closure for real projects. So it's um, as you say, it's it's pretty it's pretty important. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on on this open source uh, versus free software thing. We've talked about it multiple times on the show. Um, you know, I, I guess I will say I, I I also think that it didn't just fail for developers. I think it also failed in some ways for companies. You know, open source was sold as a way of getting getting people to work on your stuff without having to pay them. You know, it was like, well, you just sprinkle the magic open source dust, and then people are just going to work for you, and you don't have to pay them. Isn't that great? And uh, I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the open source movements say, selling that as a feature has, in some ways, soured people uh, because they say, well, that doesn't that's, that doesn't actually happen. And that's right; it 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 rarely happens that that a customer or especially just a random person is going to start working unpaid on the for a company. And then I guess talks to the other the other piece that kind of killed closure for for me personally, which was well, at first Rich Hickey was asking for donations to fund himself, and I actually was a contributor for a while to his personal fund. Um and then he started a new company and eventually this is a few years later put out a post basically saying well, you know, this open source thing is great. Um, we, this company, produce closure and we give it to you, you, the community. Um, but you shouldn't expect anything, right? This is a gift that we, that, that I give to you. And I, and that's, those are my words. So you don't have to agree with the way I'm interpreting them. But, but for me, it, it really stung. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I don't actually want to keep using this software just because of that. Um, but I'll say there were some technical reasons. The concurrency model enclosure was basically built around the idea that you would have machines with lots and lots of cores sharing memory and that machines were going to scale this way and machines weren't taking advantage of all the cores. I, I feel like we've in many ways kind of hit that limit. Like, okay, so we, we have more, a lot of machines have lots of cores. But that's not the thing that in many cases is breaking our concurrency. Um, and yet in order to, to get that concurrency model, closure introduces this idea of immutability by default and pretty much strictly, uh, uh, immutability where, you know, variables have to, they're, they're, they're basically constants un unless you very, very consciously and explicitly go through the process of changing them. They can't just kind of be casually modified. And, uh, I thought this was brilliant back, as you say, in the aughts, but, uh, I've kind of come around, uh, and, and languages that have used, you know, the asynchronous model, like, you know, like JavaScript, like modern versions of Python, like Go have kind of shed that idea as well. They, the idea is, well, actually you can do quite a lot of work with just a single thread. And if you deal with just one thread, you don't actually have to worry too much about this concurrency thing. And usually your, your concurrency issues can be handled at some other abstraction layer. And I don't remember if we've talked about the actor model on the show. Um, Chris is a really huge proponent of the actor model. Um, and it's a, it's a very different, 
programming model than the concurrency models that Clojure has. So for me, you know, the, the community, the license, the community, and then the concurrency model kind of made me turn my back to, to Clojure for a long time. And I know that you have started a very different, a different lisp called Fennel. And I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, ironically, um, it, when you say that talk about the concurrency model and the, you know, the way that closure embraces or the way that closure chooses to address scaling, it's actually really tied in with, uh, in my, in my opinion, I see a lot of convergence with that, that problem of open source versus free software because, um, closure is like from the bottom up, uh, built around the assumption that you're going to be running it on these big beefy servers and you're just, you know, the, the Java virtual machine is very memory hungry and it kind of makes a lot of assumptions about being the only program of consequence running on the machine. So when you're working in a startup and you're, you know, deploying to this, to your servers, that's fine. Like you're, you're putting the JVM is essentially the whole thing, the whole server um, but when you're writing software for people to use, like on their computer, that doesn't fly at all, right? You can't just tell people like, yeah, run this, run this big old JVM and it's gonna, it's gonna run as if it was the only thing on your machine. Hope, hope that works for you. It's got a terrible startup time. Like that doesn't fly, right? So when I, uh, it, and for me, in my, in my experience, it works great at my day job. And it's, it's a, it's a perfect fit there. The, the kind of problems that bother me about it don't apply there. But when I'm taking a step back and I'm, and I'm talking about, oh, what do I want to work on personally? What am I going to choose to spend my time on? It's not going to be the kind of problems that, you know, a Silicon Valley company has. It's going to be problems that real humans have. And for that, I feel like you don't, you don't want that baggage. It's, it's just not a good fit. So, um, so what I've been working on more, uh, in the past couple of years is the programming language called Fennel, um, which is, has a lot of parallels to Clojure because it's, um, it's a lisp. It's, superficially very similar um just in terms of like what functions look like and and how you uh bind variables and things but um the other similarity with closure is that it's hosted on an existing virtual machine so uh fennel is a compiler that targets lua and runs on you know any uh anywhere that lua runs which turns out to be an awful lot of of places um, the Lua, the canonical Lua virtual machine implementation is 200 kilobytes. So it's very popular to embed inside a larger program. And that, uh, what you get, you, you start to get, um, you start to get it used to add programmability to larger programs that would otherwise be somewhat inflexible or, or, you know, Maybe in a larger program written in C, you would have to download the whole thing from source and recompile it, and it's going to take like 20 minutes, 
every, if you want to make a minor change, but if you can embed um, something like the Lua virtual machine inside your program, then suddenly uh, it becomes, you get that instantaneous feedback. You can reprogram it uh, on the fly without restarting anything. Uh, and it's, it's a fantastic fit for that. And that, that interactivity, that immediate feedback is something that I value very highly. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite things about programming. And so that really, uh, really appealed to me as a place to, to work on a, a language. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the, for people who don't know Lua, it's a, as you say, it's a very small, very tight language. But what's great about it is that it does it it runs everywhere, and it makes it very easy to work, especially interoperability with C and C plus plus. It's got great interoperability there. Yeah, so that's another big reason why people reach for it when they're looking for a language to embed in a larger C program. So does that mean Fennel also? has those same calling out benefits where you can just say like, okay, I don't want to have to rewrite this, uh, but there's a C library. So I'll just talk, I guess, through, through Lua to, to see. Yeah, it does. Um, and one of the, one of the things that makes Fennel very, very different from closure is that it is strictly a compiler. It is not, it doesn't have any of its own runtime. So when you compile a closure pro program, you get, you know, Java bytecode that the, the Java runtime can't, it, it doesn't know the difference between the fact that it came from Clojure or the fact that it came from Java. It's just, we've got this bytecode, we're going to run it. But that Clojure code can't run without Clojure itself being there to depend upon. But when you compile a Fennel program, your, uh, the code you emit will run completely standalone on anywhere you can run Lua without bringing fennel into it uh at runtime so that that gives it a lot of reach so it gets compiled does it get turned into lua or does it just get directly compiled into the lua bytecode yeah so we actually did source to source for this because there are so many different implementations of the lua vm and they don't all share the same bytecode format so um being able to do use the source allows us to run on uh, the 200 kilobyte, you know, reference implementation on Lua JIT, which is like consistently ranks at the top of you know your benchmark shootouts for languages, on uh, the JVM, on .NET, on Go, you know, any of these. The the Lua VM is so simple that it tends to get ported a lot. So, um, so I, for someone who doesn't really know much about Lua, um. Does that also mean it's got some kind of source mapping so that if I'm debugging, I can say, well, actually, this this error came from this line of Fennel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's two approaches we can do to that. Like, one of them is if you keep the Fennel compiler resident and you're, you're developing it interactively, we can actually uh, emit a stack trace that you know replaces those line numbers for you. Um, if you're not, if you're doing ahead-of-time compilation, there's two different ways you can compile to Lua. You can compile to, um, you can have your, your Lua output be pretty printed and look indented as if it was written by a human programmer. And that actually looks, there's, there's a couple places it looks weird, but 
like it's not unusual to compile a piece of Fennel code and to see the Lua output and for it to be, you know, completely what uh, what a human would have written in the same, uh, like not to not look weird at all. Um, but you can also emit the Lua so that the like line by you it preserves line by line uh, correspondence with the Fennel. Um, so you don't need any kind of source mapping. Uh, and I, I implemented that as, uh, like on a whim, thinking it would, like, kind of work, but be really janky. And it works surprisingly well, uh, because Lua and Fennel are so close to each other semantically. There's, um, you know, Fennel brings in some new concepts, but they're all concepts that apply at compile time. And so the the input and the output tends to tend to be structured similarly, even if the syntax is different. So you mentioned targeting multiple Lua VMs. Does that include uh, Fengari, the JavaScript Lua implementation? It does. Uh, actually, if you go to fennel-lang.org, you can see uh, there is like right first thing as it loads, there's a a REPL. Uh, basically a console where you can enter fennel code. And a lot of times what happens with those kind of things is it, it, eva- it sends it to a server somewhere to get evaluated and returns the response. That doesn't happen here. We actually run it in Fengari, which is a line by line port of the C version of the Lua Virtual Machine 2 JavaScript. And, um, it works. I think the only change we had to make was, um, well, of course, the the standard REPL assumes that you have, you know, print, that you have a, a console available. And so once we made that change to, to wire it into this HTML form, uh, HTML elements instead of standard in and standard out, it just, it just did the thing. <laughs> All the, the complete final test we uh, passed in the, in the browser. I was, I was shocked. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing that it just, that it just worked like that. But that's a credit to, to the code. Um, so I'm going to ask from, from closure, there were a few other things. We talked about the concurrency model. Um, the other big thing from closure, especially for someone who's not used to a lisp is that object orientation in lisps tend to use, uh, generics rather than in the inheritance model that people are used to. And so I'm a little bit curious about how Fennel handles that. Sure, yeah. So Fennel, because it's a language that has no uh, runtime footprint at all, everything is done at compile time, which means um, we can't really introduce anything. We can't introduce anything that's not in Lua unless it is a compile time construct that can be expressed in terms of Lua without any kind of third-party libraries and that means we're we're we do what lua does which is um give you the flexibility you need to construct an object system but not not include it in the language itself so it's very common for lua programmers to build a class system in you know a couple hundred lines of code that has method dispatch uh, but it's not part of the language itself. So that's, uh, it's, it's typically done similar to JavaScript with a prototypal inheritance system. 
Uh, it's called Meta Tables in Lua. And, um, it works if you're into that kind of thing, but, um, I've never really found it to be all that valuable. So I just don't. <laughs> um, you, you just don't use objects or you just, you do something entirely different? I don't really like the term object orientation just because it, it brings together several different pieces of different, different concepts under one umbrella that I, I don't think really belong under one umbrella and are, are a lot more interesting to talk about in isolation. Like the idea of encapsulation is very important in Fennel, but we use it solely, we encapsulate solely through closures, uh, through, you know, lexical scope. And that gives us that particular benefit of object orientation without objects. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty common technique in, in languages that have, uh, you know, first class functions and, and proper scoping. Um, so encapsulation is there, uh, you know, you can have, uh, an object that is, so in Lua it would be a table, a data structure that has both data and functions in it. And you achieve that in Lua by just putting the function in the table as a field and, uh, and then calling it. And there's a little bit of syntactic sugar for that. Just, you know, the method is is just another field, just like any other string would be inside the inside the table, um, and so that that gives you that particular angle of object orientation. Um, if you want to build some kind of generic interface where you call you know the dot foo function, and on this object it, it does this, and on that object it does that, you just do that by putting a different function in the foo field of those two objects. And so it, you know, the, the complex object hierarchy really feels like you're uh, overthinking it. In a way. And then I guess you've got some kind of, um, so if you're talking to Lua and Lua's talking to C++, I guess Lua's got some kind of interoperability uh, syntax. And I guess you've got your own that you use when you're, when you're making that leap. You know, I could really tell you much about the C++ interop. I, I know the C interop is top-notch, and especially in LuaJIT, is considered one of the best foreign function interfaces around, but I don't really know how that plays into objects in C++, unfortunately. I've never had to do anything like that. Part of what makes Fennel work so well is that Lua itself has just chosen kind of the sweet spot of features to, to implement. Like, um, they say this about Scheme a lot, that it just takes away features that aren't necessary and just gives you only the features that are needed so you can build your own of whatever you want. And I think in a lot of ways it's true of Scheme in a very mathematical and academic sense, but I feel like it's true of Lua as well in a sense that ends up feeling more satisfying in a practical uh when it when it's applied practically and so like the Lua language is just relentlessly simple and part of that is it only has one data structure and that's the table. So in li in scheme there's only one data structure and that's the list. And I feel like uh JavaScript and PHP have maybe um given that strategy a bad reputation <laughs> because uh 
because theirs is the string? No, no, no. I mean, they have, they have, you know, JavaScript has the object, and it's really just a big hash table that you put things in, and even an array is an object. Like, an array isn't, um, there's, it's just an object that happens to use numeric keys, and if you want to stuff a string key in there, you can do that, um, and it, you know, there's various reasons why that ends up being unsatisfying in, in PHP and JavaScript, but Lua doesn't put in a lot of magic, and it 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 takes a getting used to. But really, you just there's only one data structure ever, and that's the table. And whether whether it's uh, sequential or associative depends not on the data structure itself, but on how you access the data structure. So you can you can go to a table and say, okay, uh, loop over this as if it were. Uh, a, a list, a sequence, like with numeric keys, um, or loop over this as if it were, uh, you know, a dictionary, key value pairs, and they both work, uh, and it's not, it's not inherent in the data structure. So we, we ended up supporting, you know, curly braces for key value as a way of, as a way of creating a key value table. And square brackets as a way of creating a sequential table that only has numbers, like increasing numbers, consecutive numbers as its, as its keys. But really that's just, uh, that's just different notation for the same result, basically. That's interesting, especially for someone like me who hasn't uh, used Lua, that, that's an interesting abstraction that I hadn't considered and uh, obviously ha- lends itself well to a wide variety of programming styles. So, um, definitely something, uh, I need to, I need to take some time to, to look into. Um, so you've done other things. Uh, I, I want to. I'm sorry, actually. I want to get to. Before we move yeah. on from Fennel, I want to make sure I clarify something. Uh, because I, I heard you mention earlier that I was the creator of Fennel, and that's actually not true. I, um, I'm one of the lead developers, but uh, the original creator of Fennel is Calvin Rose, and he he created it uh, like in a two week period back in 2016, and just this incredible tiny gem of a compiler, and then kind of forgot about it for several years, and um, I stumbled across it and started opening issues and and making suggestions for things to do to it and uh and then he picked it back up and we started working on it together so um i just want to not take credit for something i didn't do there so <laughs> no that, that's that's a good thing uh, but you revitalized it and are taking a you're a heavy contributor yeah, yeah. so uh i want to talk about hardware but um, I also know that you've built a few games, although I'll be honest and say I, I don't actually think I've played one of your games. Sure. Well, that's a nice uh, segue from Fennel because uh, that's that's what I use for most of my games. Uh, I originally got interested in Lua when I kind of took a uh, took a semi-retirement from programming and um, ended up doing a lot of volunteer work, but. I wanted to, you know, do some, keep a few side projects going to stay sharp. And I started writing some games with my kids 
Uh, I did a few early ones in Racket, uh, and then I when I found the the Love 2D framework in that uses Lua, that kind of stuck, and uh, and I, I really uh, really really seemed like a good fit for the the kind of games I wanted to build. So um, I for for a couple of years I I I did a couple uh, a couple games just kind of side projects and stuff in in Lua, and then when I found Fennel, it kind of revitalized that for me and, and brought me back into like, oh, wow, I can do so many cool things here. So um, the first game I made in Fennel was for the 2018 Lisp Game Jam, and it's called Exo Encounter 667, and it's all about... Uh, it's all about... Uh, you're, you play as, a, as an unmanned probe that crash lands on an exoplanet, and you have to kind of uncover the the ruins of an ancient civilization and figure out what's going on with solving solving some puzzles and stuff. But uh, I had tons of fun doing that, and that was that was kind of the first non-trivial Fennel program I ever wrote for for the game jam, and that ended up uh, taking first place in the in the jams. That was a lot of fun. Wow, wow, <laughs> that sounds that sounds really fun for people who might have missed it. I mean, we'll have it in the show notes. But you wanna you wanna repeat that the name? Oh yeah, it's called Exo Encounter Six Six Seven, and that's probably the game I'm I'm the most proud of. I feel like it was the most cohesive and fun. And I remember I was the reason I could spend so much time on it is I was traveling on the week when the game jam happened, and I was in San Francisco, so I had had a lot of like evenings in the hotel to myself. But when I was writing the story, I very distinctly remember going to um, you know JWZ the the Netscape employee who was also an Emacs contributor. Yeah, he made uh, Lucid, right? He made X-Emacs, essentially. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So he ended up, like, just getting so sick of the Valley and working for a tech startup that he, like, bailed on Netscape uh, and sold all his stock, like, six months before the dot-com crash and bought a nightclub. Well, he expanded it to also have a pizza place next to it, and and which was right next to where I used to work at my previous job. Uh, so I, I like I go there sometimes, and I my tradition is to use Emacs while reading his blog and watching the bizarre music videos that play uh, at the pizza place, and he, and he eat the pizza, which is not like great pizza, but it's a tradition. It's it's a thing I I do. And I have a very distinct memory of like sitting down, having a vague idea of the story I wanted to tell, and like being in there for three hours and just like blasting out this story, and like going back to it later and thinking, "Oh, I actually really happy with how that turned out." Like maybe all those weird music videos or whatever kind (laughs) of inspired me or whatever. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's a a very short game. It's you know, game jams are are necessarily pretty limited so you can finish it in like half an hour but um yeah you can check it out i've done several other ones since then um as well uh and my most recent one is a game where you play as a the operator of a transporter on a starship and you have to like go on these missions where you beam beam people up without like losing their various particles into the ether that one's called energize I want to use some time to talk about the uh, Atreus keyboard, or is it Atreus or Atreus? Atreus, yeah. Atreus. 
um, which is a, um, I've got one right here. I'm, I'm unfortunately not using it to type, but it's, it's right next to me. And it's this little awesome keyboard that's clickety and, uh, with a kind of a different, first of all, it's small and compact. It's clickety and it's got an interesting keyboard layout. And I'd love, uh, and I know that you, that you designed it in Emacs. So I'd love for you to talk about that a little. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the pitch, I guess, is that it's a keyboard that's travel keyboard, mechanical keyboard, ergonomic, sorry, travel, mechanical, ergonomic DIY keyboard. So let's start at the top travel. It's, uh, I, I bought a really fancy mechanical keyboard that I started using at home and I just loved it. I loved the crisp response of the switches. I loved that it was very ergonomic, but it was big and I work from coffee shops a lot and it was, it was really a drag for me to like pull it out and like try to find space for it. And so I wanted something that I could just throw in my bag and I could just put in my lap. I wouldn't even need to have space for it at the the table I was sitting at, wherever I was, you know, at the airport, coffee shop, on the road, whatever. So that that was kind of the the first factor. Um, mechanical, it's uh, you know, it uses it uses key switches where every key has a spring in it, rather than being kind of the um, the one layer of rubber that conventional keyboards nowadays have as a cost cutting measure it's uh you know it's got it's got a real real precise key response to it uh and for me that just uh, it feels very satisfying it's ergonomic it's um so if you look at a conventional keyboard you see that the the keys are arranged uh, in a where every row is staggered from the other one and that's you know if you've ever typed on a typewriter where the striking arms have to come up and hit the paper you know that you can't align the keys in a way that you might expect because it would cause the the striking arms on the typewriter to jam. But of course, we don't have striking arms on our laptop keyboards, but they retain that same uh, unfortunate design. So I, I kind of took a step back, and you know, if you look at your, if you hold out your hand and look at your hand, you you notice there's that your your fingers kind of go in an arc, and you know, your your pinky is shorter your, and your middle finger is longer. And so I, I tried to make the keys uh, of the keyboard line up with the, the, the fingers that are pressing them, which you would think is not a very difficult concept, but uh, it's, it's unfortunately quite rare. And then finally, it's a DIY kit. So uh, you can build one, uh, solder it together yourself, which I think is is a lot of fun and can be pretty satisfying to, to get that hands-on experience. Yeah. I know that's something we, we enjoy doing sometimes here. Although I bought the pre-soldered one, uh, an early pre-soldered one from you. It was, uh, but, but, uh, so, so actually for people who may not have seen this, but may have seen a more uh, expensive and elaborate keyboard, the keyboardio, which is also an, an quote unquote open source keyboard. It's similar in layout, but much, much smaller. Um, like I can't imagine taking the keyboardio out with me anywhere 
Whereas this absolutely could just go in a small, you know, in a bag. You've got a, you've got a picture of someone in a, with, with, in a jeans pocket. I don't know where these <laughs> jeans come from because, yeah. um, I don't, I don't have jeans with pockets that big, but, but it could definitely easily fit in, in a backpack or a messenger bag or, uh, I've got a man purse. Like it could totally fit in my man purse. So, um, yeah, no, and, and it's, it is really clickety. Uh, it doesn't have, uh, it does not impose any particular keyboard layout either. Uh, none of the, co- none of the keys have, um, have symbols printed on them. So kind of can invent that for yourself. <laughs> you can, uh, so the, the keyboard has a microcontroller in it, which is an Arduino compatible. So it, um, you know, you, you can take that and flash it with your own layout if you decide you want to add a layer or just shift around the keys and stuff. That's a big part. And as you mentioned, you know, it's a, it's the, Open hardware life. It, it's got an open hardware license. It's released under the GPL version three. So, you know, that's a big, a big deal for me for, uh, for why I've been working on the project, that, that motivation. But it's funny because you should mention Keyboardio because, um, I'm actually working with them to do the, the next generation of the Atrius, the Atrius two. It's, um, it's going to be, uh, slightly smaller version with a couple extra keys and it's going to be I'm, I'm working with them with all the the expertise they have with supply chain management and things like that to uh start selling one that is significantly cheaper because right now the volume is so low that it's really just the kind of business that i've been running out of my own closet basically <laughs> and so that that ends up you know, being, being pretty pricey, especially for something that you have to still build yourself. And so the next version is going to be significantly cheaper working with the, working with the, their, uh, their supply chain and all, all that experience that they got from, you know, const- building and selling their, uh, keyboardio, uh, keyboard, which is also a really solid product as well. It's funny that you mentioned the price though, because I was thinking, uh, how much, uh, how inexpensive it is when you look, compare it to other mechanical keyboards, right? Like mechanical keyboards can be hundreds of dollars and the Atrius was, is only like 180 US dollars. So I'm like, oh, it was a, it's a bargain. And I think it was, I, I actually think it was still less than the keyboardio, which as you mentioned had a, a much higher volume. I don't recall because I was a Kickstarter to the keyboardio and that was a really long time ago. So I don't actually remember how much I paid, but I think that the Atrius was, was, was might've been less expensive. I don't want to, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is. Um, but I mean, like it depends, right. Who you're going to compare it with because you know, you can, you can spend as much on a keyboard as you want to spend. And so some people see, compare it to, you know, maybe something they would find in Best Buy for uh for fifty bucks and be like, oh so and the the DIY kit is is hundred fifty. So, you know, oh why am I paying three times as much for something I you know have to put together myself. But yeah, when you compare it to, you know, a lot of the high end mechanical keyboards, the um the keyboardio has this uh big like hardwood maple body so you know that that adds a lot to the cost and it's it's really classy but it also you know adds a lot of weight and stuff too so we're yeah we're working on getting it 
Um, hopefully the fully assembled Atreus 2 will be significantly cheaper than the, um, than the DIY version of the Atreus 1. So that's going to open it up to a much wider audience. But it won't be, it won't be a kit. It'll just be a, a fully assembled keyboard. Yeah. You know, at that, at that point, it, like, it doesn't make sense to, to offer it really as a kit necessarily. Um, at least not through the, the factory. I may end up, um, continuing to sell a small number of those as a premium item where the kit actually costs more because I'll, I can customize it. You know, I can, I can do a, a wood case that has a laser engraving or something. If you have a logo or you want to put your name on it or something like that. Um, I haven't really decided, but that's one of the, one of the ideas I'm, I'm considering. But it'll still, but it'll have Cherry X, uh, Cherry MX, uh, switches. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay, so that's that's still pretty amazing. And so I'm just looking at your website, and then it looks like you're switching to the same firmware that uh, Keyboardier uses, which I guess is a good thing so that there's some convergence. Yeah, they've got a nice tool that lets you remap it without, like, downloading GCC and stuff like that, like a, a GUI tool that is, is actually pretty slick. So um, that that made a lot of sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Wow, we've covered a lot. Is there any other, are there any other projects you'd like to to talk about? Um, I if you're interested in hearing more about the construction and the the design and the rationale behind the Atreus, there I gave a talk at um, at RacketCon uh, 2019 in Utah, and it's uh, goes into a lot more detail there. So I ended up using Racket to design the circuit board and, and parts of the case. Uh, and so talk a little bit about, about that there, but is that uh, talk online somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll get you a link. You can put it. In the okay, show cool. Notes, and then we'll, sure. we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Cause I want to watch it and I'm sure people listening are going to want to do the same. Um, yeah. So, wow, we've covered, we've covered a lot. Um, and it's really been awesome having you here. I'm sure. I'm sure that uh, our paths will cross again because so many of the things we talk about in the show are things that you're involved in. Um, but I think it's a good place to wrap up for now. Um, so if anyone would like to send some feedback, uh, our email address is podcast at org. You can hang out with us on IRC on Freenode. We're um, hashtag or hash LibraLounge. Um, we're on the Fediverse, um, at floss.social. We're at Libra Lounge at floss.social. Um, oh, we're on Twitter at Libra Lounge. And I think that is it. And, uh, we will see you next time. So thanks everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at librelounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joth, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.